Will you join me and turn in your Old Testament to Deuteronomy chapter 4? Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse, verses 5 through 8. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. Where there we read, as Moses spoke to the people of Israel before they entered into the promised land, these words. See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? Now turning to Romans chapter 13. Pew Bible page 1764. The first seven verses. Where there, Paul says to the church in Rome, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of, one, of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants, who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If you owe revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. We're also looking at Article 36 in the back of your green Psalter hymnals on page... 88. Article 36. Entitled, The Magistracy or Civil Government. We believe in our hearts, confess with our mouths that our gracious God, because of the depravity of mankind, has appointed kings, princes, and magistrates. Willing that the world should be governed by certain laws and policies, to the end that the dissoluteness of men might be restrained, and all things carried on among them with good order and decency. For this purpose, he has invested the magistracy with the sword for the punishment of evildoers, for the protection of them that do well. Their office is not only to have regard unto and watch for the welfare of the civil state, but also to protect the sacred ministry. That the kingdom of Christ may thus be promoted. 
They must therefore countenance the preaching of the word of the gospel everywhere, that God may be honored and worshipped by everyone, as he commands in his word. Moreover, it is the bounden duty of everyone, of whatever state, quality, or condition he may be, to subject himself to the magistrates, to pay tribute, to show due honor and respect to them, and to obey them in all things which are not repugnant to the word of God, to supplicate for them in their prayers, that God may rule and guide them in all their ways, and that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and gravity. Wherefore, we detest the Anabaptists and other seditious people, and in general all those who reject the higher powers and magistrates and would subvert justice, introduce community of goods, and confound that decency and good order which God has established among men. And that's the teaching of our confession. I'd like to uh, ask you a question, and it's going to be a question that uh, requires pondering, because um, it's, it's complex. The question I have for you is if a citizen of a different country comes to visit another country, is that citizen beholden to the rules of their own country from which they came from? Or are they beholden to the rules of the country which they are visiting? It's complex, right? Because the reality is it's sort of both. But um, where this overlaps with us as Christians is in this way. And it's really where... Uh, the personal application of the relationship between the, the, the church um, and the government um, comes to land with us as individual Christians. So, um, it's this. Every Christian is a temporary citizen... of this world and an eternal citizen of the world to come. Uh, And that's important too because The reality is, whatever country we live in now, whatever rules we abide by now, uh, they are going to pass away. They're not going to be forever. But the eternal world which we belong to, uh, we are citizens of heaven, is something that's not going to pass away. And it's something that's abiding. It stands forever. And the question that we often have in our day-to-day lives is, um, where do those things interact? Where do those things conflict? And how do we balance this concept of being temporary citizens of this world, of which we are called to be blessings, salt, light, um, uh, law-abiding as much as we possibly can, and um, our devotion to our home country, our forever country, to the God um, who's established his rule and reign, right? So we've got 
Three points. Oh, no, four points tonight. Sorry, tricked you. Um, the first is government by God and the civil use of the law. The second point we have is the power of the sword. The third point we have is the state. I'm going to just put the government since we started off with government. The government and the church. And the fourth point we have is the Christian and the government. What's the government's responsibility uh, to the church, and what's the Christian, individual Christian's responsibility to the government, okay? So let's start here with point number one. The first thing that is said in Article 36 is, we believe that our gracious God, because of the depravity of mankind, has appointed kings, princes, and magistrates, willing that the world should be governed by certain laws and policies to the end that the dissoluteness of men might be restrained and all things carried on among them with good order and decency. So, the reality that we have to come to terms with is God has ordained government. Um, Government is not a man-made creation. Government is not something that we thought of because we thought it would be a great idea. Government is not meant to be a hierarchical, oppressing kind of thing. Government has been ordained by God. And the reason why it was ordained by God is because of sin. Because of the depravity of mankind, God has appointed kings, princes, magistrates. And the reason why he's appointed these civil magistrates, these governing rulers, is that he was willing that the world would be governed by certain laws and policies to the end that the dissoluteness of men, dissoluteness of men might be restrained, all things carried on among them with good order and decency. God has ordained government because of sin. God has ordained government so that there could be order in society. There is a restraining nature to government. Um, Through God's ordained government, laws and policies are put into place that are meant to keep us from being as sinful as we could be. Does that make sense? They keep us from being as sinful as we could be. Um. So that there can be a society, a a civilization with order and decency. Um, What it's talking about here is the civil use of the law of God. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 5 through 8, the reason why I read that is because the law that God gave to the people of Israel was not simply meant to be, not simply meant to be a, a revelation of God's character and nature, God's holiness, not simply meant to be something that set them apart from all other uh, nations. It was also meant to be an evangelistic tool. 
What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws that God has given to us? This is something that other nations were to look at and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Look at the laws that they have, okay? Um, but also, if we're going to look at the civil use of the law, um, many um, theologians say that there are a number of uses for the law of God, and you could say summarized in the Ten Commandments. Um, one of those uses is the civil use. And what they mean by the civil use is the use of these laws as a restraining thing on evil in a culture, in a society. First um, Timothy chapter 1 actually speaks very directly in the New Testament about the abiding use of the law in the civil function. Paul says, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia... Stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they say, what they so confidently affirm. This is... Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3 through 11. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that law is made not for that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. Um, this is what Paul is saying. And if you want a good summary of that, um, I'm going to recommend a book called The Bounds of Love. Um, and in this, it talks about the uh, New Testament mandate for the continuation of the civil use of the law. This is what is said. Paul is promoting what he says in verse 4, the stewardship from God that is by faith. The word for stewardship in the Greek is oikonomia, for which we get our words economy and economics. It literally translates as law of the house. So it's a term of governance. Second, Paul contrasts those who want to be teachers of the law but do not understand what they are talking about with the proper use of the law. He's not arguing against the teaching or use of the law in itself, but against those who want to do so in a way contrary to the law and the gospel. Just to be sure, the Greek contains the exact same redundancy. If you don't see that in the uh, New, New International Version, the NIV, what we're reading. Um, it says in the Greek, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. There's only one standard. If you're going to use the law, if you're going to teach the law, you have to do it in accordance with God's law. 
Third, Paul teaches here that the law applies not only as a guide for the life of believers. This is what we call gratitude, right? But as a rule outside the church. He says specifically that the law in this sense is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient for the ungodly, sinners for the unholy and profane. This confirms the civil use of the law mentioned above, the use it has for restraining evil in society. Fourth, therefore, Paul cites the civil and judicial sections of Mosaic law here, mentioning not only the Ten Commandments, for instance, those who kill their fathers and mothers, murderers, adulterers, but also other specific laws from the Old Testament, like slave trading, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Fifth, Paul closes this brief discussion of the lawful use of the law by saying it is in accordance with the gospel. Um, So, the civil use of the law, as described in Article 36 of the uh, Belgian Confession and written in 1 Timothy chapter 1, is part of the reason why God has ordained government, so that they would use the law to restrain evil. If you know you will get in trouble for speeding, you don't speed. If you know you will get punished for murdering, you don't murder. Now, some people do murder, but generally speaking, this is a restraining element of civil government. Point number two is the sword. Now, if... God has instituted government to restrain the depravity of mankind, to hold back the evil that we can do that's that's produced in our hearts. Calvin says our hearts are idle factories. Um, So that there could be a society and a civilization that has good order and decency. How exactly um, is this um, enforced? Well, Romans chapter 13 actually tells us that God has ordained government. There is no authority except which God has established. And all the authorities that exist have been established by God. Therefore, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Uh, Verse 3 and following says, Rulers have no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of one in authority? Do what is right, and he'll commend you. For he is God's deacon, that's the word there, servant, to do your good, do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. So, Paul's understanding of God-ordained government is, if you do what is right, well, the question I have to ask is, what is Paul's definition of what is right? Is what is right whatever the government tells you? No. What is right is not whatever the government tells you. What is right is whatever is in accordance with God's word, which does not cause you to go against God's design, God's word, God's revelation. Anything that the government tells you to do 
that is against your eternal citizenship of the world to come is not something that falls under the purview of Romans 13, okay? But Romans 13, Paul's understanding of the government is, if you do what is right, you have nothing to fear from the government. But if you do what is wrong, if you do what is evil, if you break the law, right, then you should fear the government because they are God's servant to punish evildoers with the sword and to reward those who do what is good. Now, the question you have to ask yourself is, how do you apply Romans 13 when your society, your culture, your government starts calling evil good and good evil? Do you know what they call evil today? They call evil those... People who think LGBTQ plus is wrong. That's evil. You have hatred in your heart. You're transphobic. That's what people call evil today, okay? So if you're saying, no, 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 I, I, love, I love LGBTQ plus people, but I do not believe their lifestyle. I believe that the lifestyle that they're choosing, the identity that they've chosen is actually destructive to them. It's not good to them, okay? Well, that's evil. No, the good thing is that you just, you accept them and everything that they choose. See, see what I'm saying? Romans 13, the government is ordained by God to punish evildoers and to, uh, to award, reward those who do what is right. And that's why Paul says it's not only for fear of being punished that you should obey the government, but it's for conscience sake because you understand that God has ordained the government. And so what does that mean when we are a temporary citizen of this world, an eternal citizen of the world to come? Well, it does mean that the government has the power to do things like the death penalty. I know that's not popular today, but that's what the sword means. The government does not have the sword for nothing, does not bear the sword for nothing. We, as a church, we are in a different sphere of authority than the government. We hold the sword of the Spirit. We don't have the sword. And so when people come up to you and they say, well, you know, the church did the crusades, that was wrong. It's wrong. Because our weapons are not the weapons of this world. They're the weapons against spiritual powers and authorities, right? But the government that's been ordained by God, they don't bear the sword for nothing. They are meant to be an enforcer of the civil use of the law. They're meant to be, if they're functioning the way they're meant to function, uh, something that restrains the evil of mankind and allows for the flourishing of those who do good, right? They have the power of the sword. Therefore, it's necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is what is being said. The government bears the sword. They are meant to be God's servant, punishing those who do wrong, enforcing the law.
So what is the government's relationship then to the church? Um, I will tell you, I think this is one of these doctrines that I think we needed to be teaching more before everything happened last year. That we really needed to be more solid on because um, we've lost our, our grip, we've lost our grounding when it comes to this idea of this, the relationship between the government and the church, the state and the church. Um, Article 36, this purpose he has invested the magistrate with the sword for the punishment of evildoers, protection of them that do well. Um, Their office is not only to have regard unto and watch for the welfare of the civil state, but also to protect the sacred ministry that the kingdom of Christ may thus be promoted. They must therefore countenance the preaching of the word of the gospel everywhere, that God may be honored and worshipped by everyone as he commands in his word. This has been an ongoing uh, growth process, understanding the relationship between the government and the church. When the Belgian Confession was written, there was, in, uh, at that time, uh, an established view of the relationship between the government and the church, and it was Erastianism, okay? Um, Erastianism um, is a, a view of the government and the church that says um, that the government is religious, and the church is part of the government. Um, if you think about uh, Kuiper, Abraham Kuiper, and his day in the Netherlands, he was a, a state, he was a government employee. He got his paychecks from the government, and he was a minister of the gospel, okay? Um, that's what he was. That's Erastianism. When you think of the Synod of Dort, the Synod of Dort was not only a church gathering, it was a governmental gathering. The government called the Senate of Dort, okay? That's Erastianism. So now you understand why, as Abraham Kuyper is, is struggling with liberalism growing in his country, in his world, he would not know what the Netherlands and Amsterdam look like today. He would not understand, but he could see the trajectory, right, um, of, the, of the direction that it was going, and just godless culture now, very godless place now, okay? Um, but... He was starting to talk about sphere sovereignty. And the reason why he was talking about sphere sovereignty is because he understood the importance that the government had, that the government was an institution ordained by God, right? But he also understood the importance that the church has. The church is another institution ordained by God, right? And that these spheres, they don't... um, overlap each other. They're not the same thing. The family is another institution ordained by God. It has its own sphere of authority, right? Um, And so what's been confused is that I I think in a very real sense, uh, the church has forgotten that it has its own sphere of authority and has given too much control to the government and it's ruling, and it's what it's, what it's doing, okay? Um, and that's concerning, because when I talk to other pastors who are um, still not opening their churches um, for a virus that we know a lot more about now than we did before, when I talk to other pastors in Canada who are saying, well, the government's being very understanding with us. Um, they're letting us do 15% capacity 
uh, and, and we can rotate, you know, and stuff like that. And, and when I talk to other pastors and they're saying, well, it's not like we're being singled out, you know. They're also closing down Costco. They're also closing down movie theaters. They're also closing down. They, what I'm hearing from them is that they think the church is the same as Costco. They think the church is the same as a movie theater, an entertainment venue. The church is the blood-bought bride of Jesus Christ, who has Christ as the head and authority. Christ is the one who gets to regulate worship. Christ is the one who gets to tell us what we can do and what we cannot do. Do you understand that? The government does not. And so if you hear other Christian brothers and sisters say, well, Romans 13 says, obey your authorities. Obey the authorities. Romans 13 says, listen to the government. Listen to the government. The first thing that I would tell you to say back to them is, Romans 13 gives us a blueprint for what the government is ordained, called by God to do. Okay? The same way that Ephesians 5 gives us a blueprint for the way that husbands are supposed to act. Now in Ephesians 5, it says, wives, submit to your husbands. But do I, can I, can I ask you something? Do we tell wives to submit to their husbands no matter what they're doing? Do we tell wives to submit to your husband? Oh, I know he's beating the heck out of you every night. I know he's drinking. I know he's gambling and, and, and taking all your, your money and your savings away. I know he's putting you and the children at risk every day. But submit to your husband. Do what he says. Oh, I know your husband is saying that he wants you to join in these swinger parties and have sexual relationships with a lot of other people. But you got to submit to your husband. The, the Bible says submit to your husband. Now, we understand when we talk about Ephesians 5 that when we're asking wives to submit to their husbands, we're asking wives to submit to their husbands insofar as that submitting to their husband is not disobedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Romans 13 is no different. Paul is not telling you to submit to the government even if submitting to the government means disobeying God. The government and the church are their own spheres of authority. They have their own officers. And they are on level playing ground with each other in those spheres. The church can speak to the government and say, you can't do that. We are citizens of another world to come. We're beholden to that ultimately, right? Um, this particular article, Article 36, has been changed because of the new uh, experiment that we like to call the uh, America, the USA. When this article was written, it was written by Guido Debris at a time when Erastianism was the particular view of the relationship between the church and the state. So Article 37 used to say, Right here, at, but also to protect the sacred ministry. It said, their office is not only to have regard unto and watch for the welfare of the civil state, 
but also that they protect the sacred ministry and thus may remove and prevent all idolatry and false worship, that the kingdom of Antichrist may be thus destroyed and the kingdom of Christ promoted. Okay? So you understand when Gideon Debris wrote this, he was saying he wanted uh, the government to be a Christian government. But not only to be a Christian government, but a government who could then outlaw blasphemy, outlaw um, um, improper views on baptism, outlaw improper views on, so outlaw heresy, right? And that's why in the Reformation days, Baptists were drowned. You want to be baptized? Here you go. You get a, you get a real good baptism, right? Right? That's why in Reformation days, people who had an, an improper view, a heretical view of the Trinity were killed, burnt to the sink. Now, I don't know about you, but in one sense, you're like, well, if we had a really good Christian uh, president, maybe that would be a great thing. But what happens then if you get somebody who's not a good Christian and who has that kind of power? And who's the one that gets to determine what is heretical and what's not heretical? you got a mess on your hands, right? And so America, the experiment was created where there was a separation between the church and the state, right? But what people misunderstand about the separation between the church and the state is that it's not a separation between God and the state. Any government, if not tethered to the biblical worldview, becomes a religion in and of itself. You don't think that's what we're looking at today? We're looking at a new religion, a new cult. God is never to be separated from government because God is the one who ordains government. So how did we deal with this in Article 36? The change that needed to be made because obviously we're living in a country where the government does not have the authority to protect the sacred ministry, remove and prevent all idolatry and false worship. Kingdom of Antichrist may be thus destroyed and the kingdom of Christ promoted. Well, you, we can have debates about this, but this is what I would tell you I think is the proper view of the, gov- the, the relationship between the government and, uh, and the church. I think if you're going to have a truly civilized society, a place where re- evil is restrained, and you're going to have order, and you're going to have a place where there is human flourishing, the only way to do that is through the biblical worldview. No other biblical worldview gives you freedom of religion. No other biblical worldview gives you freedom of speech. No other, biblical, no other worldview creates those kinds of rights. Because rights aren't earned, they're given. Rights come from a creator. You understand that, right? And so the biblical worldview is what has created America. But the biblical worldview is what must be maintained if, if America is going to continue. And you're seeing the eradication of America Because the biblical worldview has been lost. And so my question to you is, how does that uh, happen? Well, it's because for so many years, 
we have believed the lie that the separation between church and state means that we're not allowed to bring our biblical convictions into the public realm. For so long we believed that we have to argue about abortion, but we can never quote from the Bible. Because we live in a society where not everyone believes that is the authority. So long we've listened and believed the lie that if you're a congressperson, a man or a woman, or you're in the House of Representatives, you can't outwardly express your religious convictions and faith. You can't talk about the reason why you chose to be in this position. You can't follow and stand by the morals and the ethics that this Bible prescribes. We've surrendered that. Because we thought the separation of the church and state meant the separation of God and the government. There is no such thing as the separation between God and government. Either either God is understood as the one who ordains government, and government is understood as being in line with what God has revealed, or the government becomes God. There is no other option. And so, this particular view had to be amended. This particular part of the Belgic Confession had to be changed because we don't live in a country where that is the reality. So, my understanding is that if our government is going to be able to continue to sustain society and culture, any government, it must give a nod to the Christian church. And for many, many years in our country, that's what made it the country that it was. Was that ever abused? Yeah, it was abused. The Bible was used to justify slavery and other things that we know to be wrong. Um, But um, when lawyers and uh, judges would rule on things, they would call for pastors to tell them, what does the Bible say about this? Speak into this. The first Supreme Court justice quoted often from the case laws in the Old Testament as his grounding for the decisions that he was making. It is the civil magistrate's responsibility not only to look after the welfare of the civil state, but also to protect the ministry. Synod of the Christian Reformed Church, 1958, approved the following substitute statement. And being called in this manner to contribute to the advancement of a society that is pleasing to God, the civil rulers have the task and subjection to the law of God, while completely refraining from every tendency toward exercising absolute authority, and while functioning in the sphere entrusted to them and with the means belonging to them, to remove every obstacle to the preaching of the gospel and to every aspect of divine worship in order that the word of God may have free course, the kingdom of Jesus Christ may make progress and every anti-Christian power may be resisted. What is that saying? It's saying that the church does not need the help of the government in order to be successful. The church just needs the government to get the heck out of the way. That's what it's saying. 
And I'll tell you one thing, the government has been quite in the way lately. We need to be praying that our government would get out of our way so that we can live quiet, peaceful lives, proclaim the gospel, be not hindered in bringing the gospel into all things. Therefore, they must countenance the preaching of the word of the gospel everywhere, that God may be honored and worshipped by everyone as he commands in his word. Are you praying that the government um, would not hinder the church in her mission? Well, here's the final question then. What is the Christian's responsibility to the government? I know I sort of already played my card a little bit on that. Um... 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter says these words. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good and lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether the king is the supreme authority or the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. Article 36 says, It is the bounden duty of everyone, whatever state, quality, or condition he may be, to subject himself to the magistrates, to pay tribute, to show due honor and respect to them, to obey them in all things which are not repugnant to the word of God, to supplicate for them in their prayers, that God may rule and guide them in all their ways, and that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and gravity. It should be our desire um, that uh, the Christians should not be known as the ones who are uh, political rebel rousers, um, those who are causing riots, um, those who are um, seeking to... Uh, bring upheaval and um, insurrection. It should be our desire as Christians that um, in every possible way that we can, uh, we'll obey. They want to slander us? Go on. We're going to live such good lives among them, they're going to glorify God on the day He visits we are called to have a disposition of submission for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king, as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong, commend those who do right. Because by doing good, it's God's will that we should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. 
Um, so we're, we're called to live as good, law-abiding citizens in whatever place God has put us in. Um, but there is, a, there is a line in which we say it is our desire to be obedient to you. But we can't go there, right? And so much of the debate and conversation is, what is that line? What is that place, okay? For the early church, it was, we desire to be obedient to you in every way, but we will not put a pinch of incense on the altar and offer prayers to Caesar. Because Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord, okay? So there was a controversy then, too. Um, and it's those people who stood firm, who then were slandered as those who were causing disruption and issues in our culture and our society because they refused to just offer a pinch of incense to Caesar. But they stood on their convictions, okay? Um, when the Bible says, wives, submit to your husbands, that should be the disposition too. Husbands, we desire to be obedient to you, to submit to you, but we can't. We can't there. We can't there. But my disposition is, I want to be obedient. I want to be submissive to you, okay? Um, this is how every Christian's disposition should be towards the government, too. Our desire is that we would be obedient to you, that we would submit to your governing authorities, but um, we disagree with this, and we're going to file a complaint. Uh, we disagree with this. We're going to vote against this. We disagree with this. We're going to march in front of the courthouse and say, stop killing babies. We disagree with this. We're going to speak out against this. We're going to get a petition signed for this. We disagree with this, um, but we're going to keep, you know, doing this. Um, uh, we desire to be obedient to you, but we're sorry. You can't tell us whether we can gather for worship or not. This is not a plague. Nobody's dying uh, in, in huge amounts and numbers, we're going to gather again for worship, okay? Um, we're going to do that. That's, that's one way that we can express that, hey, we, we, we're, one, we're desiring to be submissive to you, to obey you, um, but we feel like you've crossed the line here, okay? And we can't do that. We've, we've gone as far as we can there. Um, and that's where this idea of being a temporary citizen of this world and an eternal citizen of the world to come, um, it's a challenge to figure out where that application is, okay? Uh, and, and many of us are going to fall in different areas. Maybe some of us, um, as, if it's not explicitly, explicitly written in the scriptures uh, and defined are areas in which we can disagree on. We can say, well, I don't feel comfortable with this. Well, maybe, you know, I, you do feel comfortable with this. There's some uh, broadness here, right? But at the same time, there's, there's, these are categories that, um, that were given uh, by uh, Article 36 of um, what the government was ordained by God to do. Um, the, the, uh, the authority by which that governing authority, the governing authority by, instituted by God um, is using the civil use of the law, right? The power of the sword to punish evildoers, protect those who are doing good. The relationship of the government to the church, those interrelations, uh, and the relationship between the individual Christian and the government. 
Um, these are all things that we have to work out in our daily life, in our daily practice. And Article 36 is something that helps us do that and to go back to the scriptures and see where these things are taught here in the Word. Because we have to understand that our ultimate, uh, our ultimate uh, allegiance is to our heavenly Lord Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Our ultimate allegiance and citizenship is in the place that's going to last forever. It's not here, okay? And so we don't have, um, we don't have to, imp- ultimately we don't have to impress anybody in this temporary world that we live in because we're, 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 we're seeking to impress, we're seeking to live for uh, Jesus Christ, the audience of one. Um, and so if there's any laws that we are called to obey and be obedient to in this life, in this temporary world, that bring dishonor upon Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that bring dishonor upon his bride, the church, um, that bring dishonor upon God's very own word and the things that he has uh, revealed to us, uh, that's a law that we say, no, I'm beholden to another law. I'm beholden to the law of the world to come, the law of love. That's not in accordance with that. And so I desire to be an obedient citizen, but I can't go there. Um, So I pray that you all can um, be continuing to wrestle with these things and, uh, and feel more firmly set uh, in your citizenship, um, not in America, but your citizenship in heaven. Because it's from your citizenship in heaven that you can inform the way your citizenship in America should be, should look like, should function. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us this word. We thank you uh, that you have given us this teaching um, and that you have not to left these things to simply be uh, a matter of uh, opinion or taste, but Lord, you have revealed to us in your word um, the, the relationship between the government and the church which you've ordained in Jesus Christ, the relationship between the Christian, uh, the individual Christian and the government, uh, what you have ordained the government to do, so Lord, that we can look at our government and we can say, is our government doing that? Is our government abiding by that word, by that revelation? Is our government doing what you've called them to do? Um, and if they're not, Lord, uh, how can we call them to do that? How can we be a prophetic voice in the public sphere, in the public realm, uh, in the public square to call them, Lord, Back to you, back to what you've called them to do. Um, and we pray, Lord, uh, that, our, um, that we would, could be uh, good, law-abiding Christian citizens in this country, that we would speak out against things that uh, are wrong, but that we would always be seeking, Lord, um, to be obedient in whatever way we can, um, we, as long as we can do that and still be obedient to Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. We ask all these things and pray that you answer them for the sake of your Son. Amen. Let's sing Psalter.